When the rules of society are broken, things can get a little wild. This is Wild Society. You were just hypnotized, and I'm Chad. I'm Courtney. I'm Jordan. And I'm Bethany. Welcome to Wild Society. Hello. Doesn't that music sound like we're hypnotizing people? It does, dun, now that you dun, say that, yes. Dun, look into the circle with the dot in the middle. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Please don't murder people. <laughs> yeah, we're hypnotizing Please you for do. good. Yes. For good we're reasons. We're using our powers for good. Dun, dun. Glenda the good bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, update our listeners on the Julius Jones. Oh, I'm so glad hearing. you said that. Yes. So the the hearing happened um, this week, and it, he has been progressed on to stage two. So, Yay! Yeah, huge deal. Huge, huge deal. Big relief. Um, three of the four members voted yes, and the one that voted no was an old white man. Shocking. Oh, shocker. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Julius Jones going on to stage two where his attorneys will be able to present evidence for the first time on his behalf. And then the board will vote again. And if they vote in his favor, it will be up to our governor to make the final call. So don't be a shit, Stit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Stit is our governor for all those yeah. non-Oklahomans. Oh, this is where my correction comes in. I said JB follows me on Twitter. He doesn't. Oh, yeah, I just made that up. Apparently, that's funny. <laughs> you just made that up. But segue, you know who does follow me? Oh, who? Barack Obama. Oh wow, he does. Yeah, I've brought that up twenty-seven thousand times in my entire life. You're so he does, cool. Yeah. He follows me he and eight hundred thousand other people, so it's not like a big. He does. Yeah. yeah no. Anyway, I'm kind of cool. That's funny. So yes, go to our website. Look in the show notes if you, as we said in last episode, if you feel led, if you feel led, <laughs> if you feel led to you, do that, if you feel led, uh, sign the petition on Julius Jones' behalf, um, and let's help get this guy free. So last week, <clears throat> when I talked about the serving girl annihilator, I couldn't remember who told me the story. It was my friend Kim. Oh, nice. Months ago, told me about it. And so she and I worked together at my previous job okay. and she was in the safety group, but she also did a mean ergonomic uh, like assessment in your office. And she wanted me to what? remind everybody how great she was at that. What does that mean? It means like they set up your chair to make sure you don't get carpal tunnel. She goes, can you give me a shout out for my ergonomic skills? And I was like, of course I can. So You know, you know what ergonomics are? No. Like when you sit at your desk, you're supposed to have proper like, so you don't get carpal tunnel, how you're typing, how your back is supposed to be supported you've never heard that term before i've heard that yes no but that's probably bullshit because nobody follows that I'm sure. i did i sat that was my best posture years of my life <laughs> now i feel like a creature when i eat best yeah. posture years of my life <laughs> <laughs> don't come at me don't at me well kim sounds like he needs another lesson <laughs> or a refresher he needs an alignment I got my shot, my first shot. Oh, I saw you Yay! tweeted about it. Because I'm in phase three. However, you all know how I hate medical oh, stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, same. So obviously I was nervous that they had it down to like a machine. I got my shot a minute after my appointment was supposed to start. Oh my gosh, wow. But hmm, 
So I get there and the local Fox affiliate is there. So I, I check in and then they're like, go to that person. And then the next booth that opens up, you'll go to. So I, I'm standing there and I see this Fox camera and it's pointed at one booth where somebody's in. And I'm like, I can tell you right now, there's 15 booths. I'm like, that's going to be the booth that opens up next. <laughs> sure enough. Of course it was. So I walk over there and they film me getting my shot. Are you famous now? Well, hold on. So I go to sit down and I'm like, this is, I've passed out getting a tetanus shot before. I've passed out at doctor's offices getting mm-hmm. shots before. So I like scurry to sit down because you're supposed to sit down for like 15 minutes. Yes. And the PR person for the hospital comes up to me and she's like, Fox would like to interview you. And I was like, no, I, de- I declined it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to pass out on, on television. <laughs> I'll decline this interview offer. I was things. like, no, I'm not doing that. She Don't was, you know who I am? She was like, I wouldn't do it either. Oh. No, it made me feel better. <laughs> it made me feel better. I was like, can you imagine I would be passing out? That thing would go viral. You should have accepted <laughs> the interview and given our podcast a shout out. <gasps> That's what people at work said. I texted my work mm-hmm. my work friends and they're like, way to forget to plug the podcast. Yeah, I was like, missed opportunity. I out. They're like, how's it feel to get a get the shot? Well, Wow Society <laughs> was formed by us last year. <laughs> I know everyone. They ha- think that you're like delusional because of the shot. Like, what is this guy <laughs> talking about? Murder. Get him a room. Realm of the bizarre. What? Courtney, I want to acknowledge that you're drinking a margarita in a um in a bottle in a bottle. Which yeah, is fantastic. <laughs> Courtney Amazing. showed up today with side pony, <laughs> yep. food in a Tupperware container, and a margarita <laughs> in a glass bottle. Yeah, keeping it classy today. Yeah. <laughs> You're basically my idol right now in this yeah. point in time. You know, pretty much. Proud to be. We are all drinking some white wine and cheersing to Chad's early birthday. Yay. Cheers. Ooh, the big 13. The big 27. <laughs> 27 years old. As a youngest member of the podcast, um, I feel like age is just a number. And, yes. you know, life yes. gets better the older you get. Agreed. I tried to make Chad... A Wild Society hat with my <gasps> cricket. Because I want a damn hat. Yeah, I know. And I started to adhere it. And I don't know if... I think I just have the wrong vinyl. It is heat transfer vinyl, which my cricket people will know. I don't even know what that means. But for some reason, with the texture I of the hat... I want heat transfer. That's what I expect, This is though. doubling as Courtney's basic bitch blog. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Yes. It didn't work, so... That's okay. It's yeah. not my birthday yet. I know. But I'm going to so do some research. I, I expect you to one day mail it to New Orleans. <laughs> okay. I better have it on my birthday. 100%. Is what I'm saying. Yep. We'll do. Days. I just picture Courtney. She's leaning over like an ironing board, trying to steam this cricket shit. Yeah. She's getting frustrated. <laughs> She's going, throwing back a bottled margarita. <laughs> How many of those do you have at your house? Um, They come in a pack of six. I had one last night. I'm having one right now. So I got four left at home. It's like your Gatorade, I feel like. <laughs> You know, honestly, that's kind of what it tastes like. You're like It's running. like the clear Gatorade. I want her to have like a crazy straw. <laughs> yes. And then when it gets in, it just slurps, you know? Yes. <laughs> By the way, it was like 80 something today. Yeah, it's been so nice here in Oklahoma. No, it was not nice. It was very nice. It's been very windy. It was today not... wasn't that bad. Are you kidding? Did you go outside? Yeah. Yesterday was really windy. Yesterday was so windy that um, when I came home to get my shot, our house alarm was going off loud. Because we have an alarm on our door upstairs and the wind oh, blew it open. Oh, like just oh, enough creepy. for our alarm to go off. That would scare me. I lost my favorite hat yesterday because of the wind. Ugh. Like where you're oh, driving no. and it blew out the window? I was trying to get Letty into her car seat 
and it just flew right off my head and it went so fast that I have no idea. I drove around the park. Yes. I drove around the parking lot and couldn't find it. Like it went so off my head so fast. It was my Magnolia hat. Oh, did Letty laugh? I bet she thought it was funny. She, well, she just kind of looked at me because I started freaking out. I don't think she realized what happened. Well, next time we go to Austin, we'll stop and let you get another Magnolia hat. Yes, please. You and Jordan can go in and Chad and I will go have a drink somewhere. We'll go straight to Austin. (laughs) Yeah, we'll meet you in Austin. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see you in Austin. (laughs) No offense, Joanne. We're going to solve the servant girl annihilator by the time you guys get there. I'm really disappointed in you right now. (laughs) Because you know that she's my spirit animal. That's like my place. The servant girl annihilator? Oh. (laughs) Joanna Gaines. Joanna Gaines. I feel like Chip is my soul I want to go. Then why don't you want to go to Magnolia? I've been there before. I don't know. I've There's a it. lot yeah, more now. More. I stopped once to go. And Bethany traffic, has my back on this. Traffic I feel like. was such a nightmare. I just was like, forget this. And I got back on the highway and finished on to Austin. Too many people can't find parking. I don't want to fight over ship lap. So if we were going exactly, <laughs> if we were going somewhere like I didn't care about, I would be like, sure. I know. I want to get like, to Austin. Austin. I love you. Since Courtney's shooting me a dirty look, I would stop with you for at least thirty five minutes. Okay. Yeah, thanks. 30 minutes is 25. I just need 80. a new hat. Joanna, if you're listening, you can just mail it to me at. I'm just I kidding. do want one of those Texas Forever shirts. I have one, but that's because it's from Friday Night Lights. Keep sending us your questions. Yes, for our video, we've we've gotten some. They're great. Keep sending us questions about the podcast, about us, about anything. Not about Ben. About Ben for sure. <laughs> Pick another topic. Remember, we each get like free questions to ask each other. So, you know, I'm going to ask about Ben if nobody. I'm a very interesting person. Like, ask me something about myself. Courtney's feeling left out, Chad. Well, Courtney, I hate to tell you, we've received 100 (laughs) questions and none of them are about you. I'm sure. 57 of them are about Ben. (laughs) No. Ben's going to come on and then everybody's going to be like, oh, he's not as great as I (gasps) thought he was. Courtney Jean. Stop it. Courtney Jean. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not my middle name. name? Nicole. Courtney Jean. (laughs) Courtney Jean sounds more Southern. No, Letty's middle name is Jean. It is? Yes. Letty Jean? Yes. Letty Jean? I can't. No, my husband's great, but he is. No, 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 but. Just don't know, but. Ben's the best. Okay, we need to start because Courtney's story is three hours long. Jordan's is apparently two hours long. (laughs) We need to get this night rolling. So on that note, before we dive into it, head over to our website, wildsocietypodcast.com to see pictures from today's episode. Wherever you're listening, be sure to hit follow or subscribe so you'll receive each week's new episode automatically. All right, are you all ready? I have the murder story this week. No, back off. No, I have the murder case this week. (laughs) No, I do. It's me. (laughs) Just tell it how it ends and then do it in reverse. Okay. And <laughs> what if I just started doing that? Successful very be two out turn. Would siblings he? What if I just started? Oh, that blew my mind. <laughs> I was talking about like the ending and then like. I'm sorry. Plot wise. Was yeah. that a Furby? <laughs> I was talking plot wise, not literally read it backwards. I'm glad I was born in 1980. I feel like you all. I feel like I won the childhood er- years. Y'all got Britney, which is pretty good, though. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I always let my Tamagotchis die. We know you killed a you lot killed of people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not the psychopath of the group. I don't I'm know. sane. Wait, I didn't get the most, did I? No, you answered the answered question. Answered the now. question. Right. right. <laughs> you were right. But we scored the lowest on the psychopath. They did. They scored the highest. I know, but your answer. I can't That's get just called it. being smart. Nope. It's all about being street smart. Being a smart psychopath. <laughs> That's not street smart. Psychopath smarts.
Anyway, let's get into right. the murder. So you're admitting I'm smart. Let's hear it. Don't care how. <laughs> I think we're a little loopy today. Yeah. This is the story of Colonel Sanders and his <laughs> killer fried chicken. Oh my god. <laughs> Can we talk about the ca- time I had KFC a few months ago? You've already, we've already talked, talked about, about, it. about it. Best meal I've oh ever my had god. In my life. We've talked about Have it. Have you listened to our podcast, Chad? Just wondering. <laughs> I think I black out half the time because people will message me and be like, oh, when you guys were talking, I'm like, I don't remember that at what? all. They're like, it was your last episode. I would say, I would say it's definitely true that they start to like run together for me. They do. Yeah. I mean, this is our 26th episode. Yeah. Well, if we ever actually get to it. <laughs> okay. So I have the murder case this week and we're going to talk about Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. Oh, I love Monopoly. <laughs> Monopoly. Oh my gosh, definitely not Monopoly. The dating game. Life. Dating. Dating game, not any kind of game. Oh. <laughs> the dating oh my game. God. Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Buqua was born on August 23rd, 1943 in San Antonio, Texas. He lived in San Antonio until he was around eight years old when his father moved the family to Mexico. Three years later, his father abandoned the family. Alcala's mother, Anna Maria, moved him and his siblings back to the U.S. just outside of Los Angeles. Rodney was described as being highly intelligent. He attended private Catholic schools. His mother loved him dearly, and his siblings would turn out to be very successful. At 17, he joined the Army and served as a clerk. In 1964, Alcala was honorably discharged from the Army after suffering a mental breakdown. He hitchhiked from Fort Bragg to his mother's house after having the psychological episode. A military psychiatrist diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder. And I didn't know what that meant, so it is defined as a personality disorder characterized by a long-term pattern of disregard for or violation of the rights of others. After being discharged from the Army, Alcala attended college at California State University but then transferred to UCLA where he graduated with a fine arts degree in 1968. In 1968, a witness saw Alcala lure, lure. He saw a lure. Lure. He had a lure, a fishing lure. lure. He had a fishing lure. <laughs> caught the, he caught those pike and Saskatchewan. Pike Saskatchewan. In 1968, a witness saw Alcala lure. <laughs> he had a lure. The, caught those pike in Saskatchewan. Can I say that? We're, leave, we're leaving. Lure. That we're leaving that. Lure. Keep going. That I stays in there. I went it. fishing, but I forgot my lure. I had the lure. My lure. I lured that fish with my lure. Lure. Right? Praise the lure. Praise the lure. Lure. Praise lure. Lure. Is that how you say it? Yes. That's how every person in America says it, except for you. I'm so scared to say it again. Lure. Mm-hmm. Just keep going. Lure. We all got it. In 1968, a witness saw Alcala lure an eight-year-old girl named Tali Shapiro into his car from Hollywood's Sunset Boulevard. The witness followed the car to Alcala's apartment and then reported it to police. When recalling the event, Tali said, I told him I didn't talk to strangers. That is when he told me he knew my parents. I really didn't want to get into the car, but I was raised to respect my elders. I didn't know to fear people. When Officer Chris Comancho knocked on the door of Alcala's residence, he peeked through the door and said, I'm in the shower. I got to get dressed. Officer Comancho told him that he had a few seconds to get dressed before he was coming in. 
Comancho then proceeded to kick down the door after Alcala did not return to let him in. Comancho saw a body on the floor with lots of blood surrounding it in the kitchen. The officer thought little Tally was dead because she wasn't breathing. Matt Murphy, Orange County Deputy DA, said, They say a picture says a thousand words, and that image of those little white Mary Janes on that floor with that metal bar that he used to strangle her with and that puddle of blood, it just looks like too much blood to come out of a tiny little eight-year-old like that. Comancho began to search for Alcala, but he had already escaped the apartment out of the back door. He then heard little Tally gagging, choking, and trying to breathe in the kitchen. She had been badly beaten, strangled, and raped. She was rushed to the hospital, where she was in a coma for 32 days. Oh my god. Mm. Much to everyone's surprise, Tally ultimately survived and recovered from the awful attack. Officers searched the apartment and found a lot of photography equipment and photos of very young girls and boys. They also found Rodney Alcala's picture ID showing that he was a student at UCLA. Steve Hodell, former detective for the LAPD, said, He was a snake charmer. I went and talked to his professor at UCLA. He says Rod Alcala wouldn't hurt anybody. He's a great guy. Mm. He truly believed that, you know. A lot of people did. Rodney Alcala was added to the FBI's list of 10 most wanted fugitives after his attack on Tali Shapiro. Alcala immediately left California and fled to the East Coast to avoid being arrested. He enrolled at New York University under the alias John Berger and studied film under Roman Polanski. What? Yes. Wait, huh? Wow. Like he took them like as a fake identity, Roman Polanski? No, no he took classes from him. Oh, took classes. For, okay, I misunderstood that. Never mind. No, he has. He went under the alias of John Berger. I was about like Roman Polanski. <laughs> Doesn't Roman Polanski That's have another his own story, issues? Yes. Yeah, he's yes. got some issues. That was Sharon Tate's. Yes, I wrote in here. He husband. was married to Sharon Tate, who was murdered by members of the Manson family. So it's just kind of all crazy. Oh, I but Roman, before that, he had after some, that Roman Polanski after that, had yeah. gotten into some trouble himself. Yes. Yeah, he did. Anyway, in June of 1971. Leon Borstein came home from work to see his girlfriend, Cornelia Crilly. When he arrived, he was shocked to find that the door was locked and she wasn't answering the phone. He decided to call authorities. Once inside, they found Cornelia dead. She had been bound, strangled with her nylon stockings, and stripped naked. She had something stuffed in her mouth to muffle screams and a bite mark on one of her breasts. Cornelia was 23 years old and was a flight attendant for TWA. Her boyfriend described her as having a beautiful face and carrying herself extremely sophisticatedly. Police focused attention to Cornelia's case, but because there were no leads and almost 2,000 murders in New York in 1971, the case went cold. Although this was Rodney's first murder, he was not a suspect due to lack of leads and wouldn't be for 40 years. Oh, wow. Wow. Later in 1971, Alcala got a camp counselor job at New Hampshire Arts Camp for Children. This time, he used a slightly different alias of John Berger. So the first time it was spelled B-E-R-G-E-R, and this time it was spelled B-U-R-G-E-R. So just slightly different. Makes me just think of Jack Berger from Sex in the City. He's such a fucking dud. Berger. Hated him. Oh, I, I didn't like Berger, did I? He's the worst. You cannot break up with someone with a post-it note. Okay. No, he's such a whiny little Also, bitch. I want Browns now. <laughs> I want to eat a cheeseburger. A burger. Yes. Anyway. 
Two children who were attending the arts camp recognized his face on an FBI poster that was posted at the post office. They reported him to the dean, who then reported it to officials. He was immediately arrested and extradited to California. Good for the kids. Yeah. Yeah. They were unable to convict Alcala of rape and attempted murder of Tally because the Shapiro family had relocated to Mexico and Tally's mom refused to let her testify at trial. Oh, my God. Which I get it, though. I mean, she was so young, you know? Very traumatizing. Yes. Can I play devil's advocate? Sure. Sure. I could have saved some people. You're right. Thank you. Go on. But it could have also royally... No, I said go on. I mean, it could have royally screwed her up even further, you know? Without the testimony of the primary witness, prosecutors had to allow Alcala to plead guilty to a charge of child molestation and be registered as a sex offender. So he got off easy. He received one year to life in jail. One year to life? Yes. That's from one extreme to the other. (laughs) Right? It's pretty broad. (laughs) (laughs) But after just 34 months, he was paroled under the Indeterminate Sentencing Program. This program allowed parole boards to release offenders as soon as they demonstrated evidence of rehabilitation. Not even two months after his release, Alcala was arrested again for violating his parole. He had the possible kidnapping of a 13-year-old girl, and he also got charged for giving the girl marijuana. He served two more years, but was yet again paroled under the indeterminate sentence. After being released for the second time, his parole officer granted him the opportunity to travel to New York City. It's during this time that officials believed he killed 23-year-old Ellen Hover. Ellen Hover was the daughter of the owner of Ciro's. Oh, wow. Yeah. A popular nightclub in Hollywood. She was also the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. Ellen went missing and no one knew where she had gone, nor could they get a hold of her. The story made front page news because of her family's high profile. Ellen's remains were found a year later, buried in Westchester County on the grounds of the Rockefeller estate. Oh, interesting. Her body was severely decomposed, so police had to use dental records to identify her. During this time, there was another killer on the loose, going by the name Son of Sam. Mm -hmm. So originally, police thought he could have been the one who murdered Ellen, and I have him written down to do at a later date. They eventually couldn't link Son of Sam to her case. Officials were later tipped off that Alcala had committed the murder because Ellen's calendar read that she was meeting with a guy named John Berger. Oh. And it was on the day she went missing. Okay. Also, Son of Sam, that's not what he did to people. He just shot people and ran away. He didn't, you know, take them places. Right. At the time she went missing, officials did not know how big that tiny piece of evidence would be in Ellen's case. One of the resources that I used was the 2020 episode that came out this year about Rodney Alcala. And they were talking about how when they search through people's homes who have gone missing, they don't typically take anything and they don't really search through paperwork immediately. Mm. But the calendar was like front and center on top of things. And so they could see it blatantly. And that was something that someone just picked up on. So they just kind of got lucky there. Wow. Hmm. Mm. Even though Alcala was a registered sex offender and had a criminal record, he got a job at the Los Angeles Times as a typesetter in 1977. This was also during the coverage of the Hillside Strangler murders. Interesting. Hmm. And Star Wars. (laughs) 
he had convinced many young women that he was a fashion photographer, taking pictures of them for his portfolio. He even shot some weddings during this time. A coworker from the LA Times said that he shared his photos with them at work. She claimed, I thought it was weird, but I was young. I didn't know anything. When I asked why he took the photos, he said their moms asked him to. I remember the girls were naked. A woman that let Alcala photograph her a few years later stated, He said he was a professional, so in my mind I was being a model for him. She also claimed that his portfolio had many pictures of naked teenage boys and the majority were sexually explicit. Hmm. He's just showing these people. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, his coworkers at the LA Times. In March of 1978, Alcala's past came to light and he was interviewed as a potential suspect in the Hillside Strangler killings. Wow. He was ultimately cleared from those specific crimes, but officials had no idea that they had just interviewed a killer of completely different cases. Wow. That's nuts. Later that year, Alcala became a contestant on the game show titled The Dating Game. Contestants were asked questions, sight unseen, to try to win a date with a bachelor or bachelorette. He was introduced by the host as a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in a dark room at age of 13, fully developing. What? That doesn't even make sense. I know. I bet he was fully developing. Are they trying to be sexual? Yes, yes. But, like, that doesn't even make sense because, what, they have a hidden dark room that dad didn't know about? Literally, I... It's weird. That is weird. Between takes, you might find him skydiving or motorcycling. It's like a bad dating profile. Really like on bad. Tinder or something. Yeah. Vroom, vroom. <laughs> God. <laughs> Again, from the 2020 episode, the lady who cast him for the show... The guy she also worked with was like, we're not going to put him on the show. He kind of looks creepy. Oh, wow. And she was like, no, he's really hot and women will love him. Mm-hmm. So that's why they ended up putting him on the show. When he was asked by the prospective date, Cheryl Bradshaw, to describe what kind of meal he'd be, he replied, I'm called the banana and I look really good. Peel me. I don't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> I'm called. The I literally banana. put barf. That sounds like someone's grinder profile headline. It's yeah, it does. So bad. Yeah. What's grinder? <laughs> Rodney Alcala actually won the date with Cheryl, but once she actually met him, she found him to be creepy and decided not to go out with him. Later on, the media would use his time on the show to give him the name the dating game killer. On June 20th, 1979, around 2 o'clock p.m., 17 year old Lori Wirtz was rollerblading on Sunset Beach with a friend. They were approached by a man asking to take pictures of them. Lori agreed and let him snap pics as she whizzed around on her skates. The man began asking her lots of questions and trying to get to know her. He eventually tried to convince Lori to get into his car, but she refused. Angry that she wouldn't get in, he left. At 2.30 p.m., 12-year-old Robin Samso was with her best friend Bridget Wilvert. The two girls were playing on Huntington Beach before Robin was to report to her first day of working at a dance studio in exchange for ballet lessons. While at the beach, the girls were approached by a tall man with long, dark hair. He asked them if he could take their pictures, and Robin replied with a yes. Just then, one of Bridget's neighbors popped out of nowhere and asked if the girls were okay. Bridget recalls that the man seemed angry that he was interrupted by the neighbor. The girls decided to leave the beach, going their separate ways. 
Bridget let Robin borrow her bike to head to the studio, saying, take my bike and don't stop. Bridget was the last one to see Robin that day. Oh, jeez. After she did not arrive to the dance studio, the ballet teacher called Robin's parents. Panicked, they immediately called 911. Bridget was called in for questioning since she had last been with Robin. Bridget told police that she thinks it was the man that took their picture on the beach who took Robin. Bridget then gave a description of the man and a composite sketch was made. Twelve days after Robin's disappearance, a fire crew found a child's body in a remote area about 40 miles from where Robin was last seen on the beach. The body was nearly bones as there had been 12 days for wildlife to scavenge the body. It took officials three days to identify that the body was indeed Robin Samso. The composite sketch was quickly released to the media in Southern California, and the search was on to find the man that approached the girls. Soon detectives got a call from Rodney Alcala's parole officer, who said, Look, there's a guy that used to be on my caseload. You really need to take a look at him. His name is Rodney Alcala. Being that he looked very similar to the composite sketch, authorities immediately began looking for him. This time, he was easily found because he was living with his mother in Monterey Park, California. On July 24, 1979, Rodney Alcala was arrested and charged with the kidnapping and murder of Robin Samso. Now, Rodney wasn't the brightest while he was being held in jail. During his time there, one of his sisters came to visit him. The conversation between the two of them was recorded, and police learned of a storage locker he had in Seattle. Police had also found a receipt for the storage locker while searching his residence. The locker had been rented just nine days after Robin's remains were found. Hmm. He told his sister, do me a favor, get the stuff out of there, get it cleared out. The police beat his sister to the storage locker, and what they found was concrete evidence against him. Inside was hundreds to thousands of pictures of young women and men in extremely vulnerable and sexual positions. They found a tiny bag containing multiple pairs of earrings. Oh, no. Mm. One of which was identified as being Robin's earrings. His trophies. Yeah. Prosecutors had plenty of evidence against him. In February of 1980, Alcala went to trial for the murder of Robin Samso. The trial took about two and a half months and had around 50 witnesses testify. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. But four years later, the California Supreme Court overturned his verdict because they stated that the jurors had not been properly informed of his prior sex crimes. He was tried again and was convicted for a second time with the death sentence. During his time in jail, he wrote a book titled You, the Jury in 1994, in which he argued his innocence. And that was obviously self-published and whatnot. He also filed two lawsuits against the California system for a falling accident and for them not providing him a low-fat diet. Wow. Wow. Little bitch. Rodney Alcala was prepared to fight his conviction, and again in 2001, 22 years after he murdered Robin, a federal appeals court overturned his sentence for a second time, stating that he did not get to present evidence. This guy is getting all the chances. Right? And in an hour, she's going to be like, in trial 47. <laughs> and right now, he actually looks like Weird Al Yankovic. He does. He does. So. <laughs> yeah. 
Robin's family was devastated that they were wrapped up in this game of cat and mouse. They just wanted to see justice for sweet Robin. Yeah. Robin's mom even claimed that she showed up one day during the trial with a gun in her purse and the intentions of ending Alcala's life. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Never, ever do that because you'll be in the same position he will be in. It's true. Behind bars. Yeah. Back then, there weren't metal detectors to walk through, so she could just walk right in with a gun in her purse. Once in the courtroom, she says she changed her mind because Robin spoke to her and told her not to do it. Oh, sweet. As the Samso family waited for the third trial, investigators decided to run Alcala's DNA against some DNA samples found at other crime scenes, as well as some DNA found on different earrings from the storage locker. Oh, wow. Okay. Alcala was then linked to four other murders. Wow. The first being Jill Barkham, 18, who was found on November 10th, 1977, on Franklin Canyon Road, just outside of L.A. She was found in a bent-over position as though she had been posed and was half-naked. She had ligature marks on her neck, and she had been beaten in the face so badly that she was unrecognizable. Jeez. She also had evidence of sexual assault, and according to the L.A. County Coroner's Office, she had three bite marks on her right breast. The case had originally gone cold because they had no evidence. They originally thought this was the work of the Hillside Strangler, but had no way to link him to the murder either. The second victim linked to Alcala through DNA was Georgia Wixted. Georgia, age 27, was a cardiac care nurse living in Malibu. After she didn't show up for work one morning, her coworkers called the police to do a well check on her. Upon arrival, the police noticed one of her windows was broken. Georgia was found dead inside. She had been badly beaten with a hammer, sexually assaulted, and was posed. A palm print from the suspect was left on the bed frame, but police had no one to link it to during the initial investigation. Next was Charlotte Lamb. Charlotte Lamb, 32, was a legal secretary living in Santa Monica in 1978. One night, she invited friends to go out dancing, but ended up going out alone. She was later found dead in the laundry room at an El Segundo apartment complex that she had no connection to. She had been raped, beaten, and was also posed. Oh my God, the posing thing, did he do that? He did it on early, purpose. And his earlier ones, though? The ones that he's... He, he didn't do that with the only one Robin, he, did he? The, no. It's weird. It just makes it creepier. Yeah, yeah, very. The fourth victim linked to Alcala through DNA was Jill Parento. Jill was a 21-year-old computer program key punch operator and a college student. Jill was murdered on June 14, 1979. After not showing up for work, she was found in her apartment in Burbank, California. The intruder had entered through her window. She was found naked on the floor, but was propped up by pillows. Hmm. After the new victims were found, prosecutors entered a motion to join the SAMSO charges with the four new victims in 2003. Alcala's attorneys obviously contested, but in 2006, the California Supreme Court ruled in the prosecution's favor. Rodney Alcala went to trial for the five murders in 2010. He decided to represent himself during the trial. Of course he did. Yep. Narcissist. I think he's going to win. <laughs> Acting as though he was both the interrogator and the witness by asking himself questions. <gasps> did he sit That's down creepy. and stand up, sit down and stand up, mm. sit down and stand up? I don't know up. if he did that, but they, 
They said he definitely spoke in two different voices. Ew. Yeah. Bethany, what's scary? <laughs> I've never heard of I've that. I've never before. heard. Yeah. The only part of the case that Alcala tried to dispute was that the earrings found that belonged to Samso were actually his. He did not try hard to dispute the other four murders at all. Alcala called Marianne Connolly, Robin Samso's mother, to the stand and interrogated her about bringing a gun to trial to shoot him. Oh, wow. She did not deny the claims. Marianne said, that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life, having him ask me questions. Yeah. I can't even imagine. No. Oof. Prosecutors alleged that Alcala toyed with his victims. They said he would strangle them until they lost consciousness, mm. wait until they woke up, and repeat the process several times until they finally passed away. So gross. God. That's like Moses Satole. He did mm-hmm. the same thing. They also described him as being a killing machine. Mm. The jury deliberated for two days and ultimately found Rodney Alcala guilty of all five counts of first-degree murder. During a penalty phase of the trial, prosecution brought forth a grown Tally Shapiro to the stand to further build the case against him and argue for the death penalty. Wow. Wow. In court, Alcala stated, Let me put the death penalty in perspective for you. If you desire to join in the killing of a human being, You and the families of the victims will have to wait at least 15 to 20 years while the case slowly churns through the appellate process. Alcala then proceeded to play the Arlo Guthrie song, Alice's Restaurant, that has lyrics saying... God, my favorite song. I love that song. I love Allison's Restaurant. Just wait. I want to kill. I want to kill. I want to see blood and gore and guts and veins in my teeth. Ew. Who wants to eat at that restaurant? Eat dead burnt bodies. Ew. I mean, kill, 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 kill. That's worse than Dennis Nielsen's creepy song that he played. Yeah. We play that today. No. Yeah. I don't want to hear no. that. I thought about looking it up and then I was like, no, 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 no. When I was typing this, I felt ill. Yeah, that's disgusting. What an asshole to play that. Yeah. In court, in mm-hmm. front of victims, families, and what a shithole! Like, what a shithole! Yeah. Props to Robin's mom for not actually shooting him because not yeah. everybody doesn't have the strength not to do that. Right. To refrain. And yeah. they can see how insane he is later on when he plays this song. In March of 2010, he was sentenced to death. Following his 2010 sentencing, investigators released some of the images of young women found in his storage locker in Seattle. Mm. They did this in hopes that people would recognize the people and some other cold cases could be solved. Although most of the photos were sexually explicit and could not be released, of the ones that were, 21 women came forward and identified themselves. Oh, wow. And at least six families believed they recognized loved ones who had been missing for a long time and never found. Wow. Wow. In 2011... Alcala was indicted for the murders of Cornelia Creeley and Ellen Hover. He ultimately pled guilty to both murders. Melissa Morgs, a Manhattan prosecutor, said, It was a surprise that he pled guilty because he had denied every crime he was ever accused of. Rodney Alcala was sentenced to two concurrent prison terms of 25 years to life for the murders of Cornelia and Ellen. Morgs stated, The judge cried during sentencing. 
I have been in the business for 35 years. I've never seen a judge crying during a sentencing. Yeah. I've never heard of a judge crying. I haven't either. After being sentenced in New York, Alcala was taken back to California to death row. Christine Thornton was missing for 39 years. Her sister Kathy had been desperately trying to track her down all those years. Kathy described Christine or Chris as being a very trusting free spirit. Chris and her boyfriend traveled to Wyoming in 1977 to pan for gold. Chris was six months pregnant at the time. Chris and her boyfriend got in an argument and she disappeared soon after. Mm. Kathy's son came across the 2010 48 Hours episode on Rodney Alcala, and that led him to cbsnews.com and looking at Alcala's photos of the identified women. Knowing that his aunt had been missing, he sent the link to his mother in an email and told her to take a look and see if any of them looked familiar. Kathy scrolled through the photos and noticed one that resembled Chris. Oh my God. Wow. Kathy said, that sure looks like Chris. Then I saw her little toe, her baby toe. That's one thing I always remembered about Chris was her little baby toe was different. It hooked. Oh, my God. Mm. I just saw that toe and I said, oh, yeah, that's Chris. Oh, wow. Man. That is crazy. Yeah. Kathy then decided to send in her DNA to the National Database for Missing Persons and hope that Chris's DNA was in there and they could be matched. Meanwhile, in Wyoming... Detective Jeff Shaman was assigned a cold case from 1982. A woman's remains were found in a desolate area. The skull was intact, but many of the bones had been scattered around due to the scavenging of animals. There were also bones from an unborn infant along with the women's remains. Wow. In 1982, investigators determined that it was a 25 to 35-year-old female who was approximately six months pregnant and had been out there for five to six years. Wow. The crime lab saved what they could of skin tissue and bone fragments from the unknown woman, but the case went cold. Detective Shaman decided it was worth a shot to process the DNA from the cold case. He estimated it would be another 10 to 20 years before she would be identified, but was shocked when he received a DNA match less than a year later. Mm. The DNA of the unknown woman matched to that of Kathy Thornton. Wow. After 39 years, Kathy finally knew where Christine was and what had happened to her. In 2016, officials flew from Wyoming to California to interview Alcala about Christine Thornton. Alcala was in bad health and was in a medical unit at the Corcoran prison. Detective Shaman described Alcala's prison cell as something off of a horror movie. Wow. Paint was coming off the wall and flies were buzzing around. The detectives began showing Alcala photos from Christine's crime scene. Alcala responded by saying, I know that area. That's my area. Whoa. Alcala took the photograph and began to trace Christine's body with his finger. No, no, he didn't. He tapped on and stroked the picture almost as if he was reliving the moment he killed her. Gross. They then asked, did you kill her? He responded, No, no, you're crazy. You're stupid. But then they asked, was she alive when you left her? And he responded, yes, she was alive when I left. Hmm. This was all prosecutors needed to indict Alcala for the murder of Christine Thornton. 
proof that he was with her the day she went missing and died based on his recollection to detectives and the photo he had taken of her that was recovered from his belongings. So I included that picture in there. So the picture that Kathy had identified her by, she was on Rodney's motorcycle. Wow. And that was in the area where her body was found. Alcala was charged with first-degree murder, but was never extradited to Wyoming to stand trial for Christine's murder. He was reportedly too ill, and the Wyoming officials did not want to grant him a trip out of prison, Hmm. which is very interesting. It is interesting. Many people believe that Rodney Alcala has many other victims that haven't been found or identified. In Seattle in 2010... Police named Alcala as a person of interest in the unsolved murders in 1977 and 1978 of Antoinette Whitaker, who was 13, and Joyce Gaunt, who was 17. In 2011, investigators in San Francisco announced that they believed Alcala was responsible for the murder of Pamela Lamson, who was 19, in 1977. Rodney Alcala is now 77 years old and is at the California State Prison in Corcoran. So he's still alive. Yes. He looks like he's at death's door in that 2016 picture. Well, no executions have been performed in California since 2006. And as of March of 2019, all further executions were halted by an official moratorium ordered by Governor Gavin Newsom. On July 23rd, 2019, Robin Samso's mother passed away. It was her dream to see Rodney Alcala killed. Oh, wow. That is the crazy case of Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. I always heard that name, the dating game killer. I had no idea what it was really about. In our show notes, we will put the links to the photos that he had taken that still have not been identified. So they're still looking for these possible victims of his. Wow. Hoping yeah, take that, look through them. Yeah, hoping that most of them are still alive. There's uh, women and men in there. Mm. Wow. We'll put it on our website as well. How many head shakes does he get? All the head shakes. Yeah, he's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. He got really lucky a lot of times. He did. Like, he really did. I can't believe that he got out of prison as many times as he did. And Yeah, the whole one year to life is that's uh, crazy. kind of an odd sentence. Yeah, that's yeah. a little too broad. Well, I mean, he clearly got the option to parole out, and he did. So. Yeah, good point. I have the wild story this week. I'm not ready. Not ready for this? No, I am ready. <laughs> Do you remember being a child and everything was so nope. innocent and you believed in like everything? Nope. No, I didn't believe in anything. <laughs> that memory is long. What do you believe gone. in, Chad? I'm just curious. I don't even. I believed in a thing called love. Just the rhythm of the heart. The cookie monster. I believed in these thing called gollywoggles. What? what is this real no this is real okay my uh <laughs> mom's friend kathy and her husband they made up this thing called gollywoggles and they would get you if you're this is actually a traumatic thing that i believe <laughs> i'm talking about it. but i think i believed in like a pot of gold and stuff like that 
Okay. Like leprechauns? Yeah, like, no, just the gold. Just the gold. Just the gold. <laughs> cash. I believed in the tooth fairy. Oh, yeah. I believe in all that except the Easter bunny. Same. I always thought the Easter bunny and was. Santa Claus. Didn't make sense. I believe in Santa and the tooth fairy. Santa's still real. I am Santa. <laughs> yeah, that's sad. I didn't believe in the Easter bunny. That was never a thing. Really? In my family. Uh-uh. I'm trying to. I feel like there's something I believed in as like a kid, kid. Yeah, not go- like a holiday goosebumps thing. or whatever the hell you just said. Golly woggles. What did you just say? Golly woggles. Golly woggles. Golly woggles. Golly woggles. What? When I was a oh no, I think kid. I know where this is going. Mermaids. No, oh, oh, yeah. I believed in mermaids. I believed in mermaids. Bethany, you still? Well, believe I don't in know. Mermaids. I don't. I, do. I don't know if I believed in mermaids. I loved mermaids. Jordan still wants to be a mermaid. I do. I totally. If I had a pool, I'd buy a tail and I'd swim in the Mer- pool. Merman made. Merman. Whatever. It's merman. 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 Wait. <laughs> I have a feeling I know where the story's going. Yeah, you know the story, probably. Okay, so when I was a kid, my dad bought me a book called The Encyclopedia of Things That Never Were. Mm -hmm. And it was a really thick book of all these kinds of mythical creatures, everything you can think of. And there was a section on fairies that had, quote unquote, real photos of fairies. Convinced like a 10-year-old me that they were real. It told you where you could find them. Can I interrupt? But the book was called The Things That Never Were. Did you not get that concept? (laughs) Not when I was 10 years old. Okay. Well, most 10-year-olds don't understand what that means. I was just asking a question. (laughs) Anyway, so it told you like where they lived, all that kind of stuff. So where the fairies lived? Yeah. Or where the things lived? Where the fairies lived. If you were going to go look for them, what you should look for, that kind of a situation. Is there trolls involved? No. Are we talking about gollywoggles or fairies at this point? We're talking about, about fairies. Okay. So I wake up in the morning super early, as I still do. Uh, too before early. everybody else wakes up in the house and I get my book, I'm carrying it in one arm and I'm walking <laughs> out to a tree in my backyard and I'm looking at these little holes oh in the tree. Gosh. I'm inspecting the bark. You're so cute. And I'm just like, you know, I just want to see you. Just <laughs> My dad wakes up, goes to the kitchen for some coffee. We have a big picture window in the kitchen that overlooks the backyard. He sees me, you know, talking to this tree <laughs> and all of a sudden, he's going to the back door. He kind of cracks it open. He can hear me talking to the tree. Like, I just want to see you. Oh and he thinks I've literally lost, lost my mind. Lost your mind. Yeah, that would anyway, freak me out. He still tells everyone this story to this day. <laughs> he tells it a lot differently than you tell it. He thought you were talking to a pervert. And he says, oh, he, claims, no. he claims he ran outside to fight somebody. That's oh, what he's no. told me. Yes. Well, okay. Well, then he's changed there. that story about 50 times. He then, thought you were talking that's... to a pervert. <laughs> And ran out there. That's he, what he's he told He changed me. that story or you changed that no, story? No, I swear that's what he's told me. What also didn't really help my situation was that around the same time, there was a movie that came out called Fairy Tale, A True Story about two girls in England that had photographed real fairies. I've never oh. heard of that. It's like ringing some bells for me. Okay, I like that. And this. this is the story of that true story. Oh, wow. Okay. In 1920, a series of photos captured the attention of the world. The photos, taken by two young girls, the cousins Frances Griffith and Elsie Wright, were taken while playing in the garden of Elsie's Cottonling Village home in West Yorkshire. The subject of these photos baffled everyone from photographic experts to spiritualists and became the most widely recognized photos in the world. This is the story of the Cottling Fairies. Ooh, I'm excited. In 1917, while World War I was raging on, 
Nine-year-old Frances Griffiths and her mother arrived in the UK from South Africa and stayed with Frances's aunt, uncle, and cousin, Elsie Wright, in the village of Contley in West Yorkshire. Elsie was then 16 years old. The two girls often played together beside the beck, which is also called a stream, at the bottom of the garden, much to their mother's annoyance because they frequently came back with wet feet and dirty clothes. Frances and Elsie said they only went to the beck to see the fairies and to prove it, Elsie borrowed her father's camera, a midge quarter plate. The girls returned about 30 minutes later. Elsie's father, Arthur, was an amateur photographer and had set up his own darkroom. The picture on the photographic plate he developed showed Francis behind a bush in the foreground on which four fairies appeared to be dancing. Mm. Knowing his daughter's artistic ability and that she had spent some time working in a photographer's studio, he dismissed the figures as cardboard cutouts. Two months later, the girls borrowed his camera again, and this time returned with a photograph of Elsie sitting on the lawn holding out her hand to a one-foot-tall gnome. Oh, weird. Okay, that one looks a little real. A gnome! The gnome one? The, The first one, I don't believe. The legs on the gnome. Convinced that the girls must have tampered with his camera in some way and believing it to be a prank, Arthur Wright refused to lend the camera to them again. His wife, Polly, however, believed the photographs to be authentic. Towards the end of 1918, Francis sent a letter to Joanna Parvin, a friend in Cape Town, South Africa, where Francis had lived for most of her life, enclosing the photograph of herself with the fairies. On the back, she wrote, It is funny, I never used to see them in Africa. It must have been too hot for them there. The photographs became public in mid-1919 after Elsie's mother attended a meeting of the Theosophical Society in Bradford. The lecture that evening was on quote-unquote fairy life, and at the end of the meeting, Polly Wright showed the two fairy photographs taken by her daughter and niece to the speaker. As a result, the photographs were displayed at the Society's annual conference in Harrogate, held a few months later. There, they came to the attention of a leading member of the Society, Edward Gardner. One of the central beliefs of theosophy is that humanity is undergoing a cycle of evolution, towards increasing, quote-unquote, perfection, and Gardner recognized the potential significance of the photographs for the movement. Gardner then gave them to a photography expert, Harold Snelling, to examine them. Snelling declared that the photos were genuine, unfaked photographs of single-exposure, open-air work, showing movement in all the fairy figures, and there is no trace whatsoever of studio work involving card or paper models, dark backgrounds, painted figures, etc. He did not go as far as to say that the photographs showed fairies, stating only that these are straightforward photographs of whatever was in front of the camera at the time. Gardner had the prints clarified by Snelling and new negatives produced for use in the illustrated lectures he gave around the UK. Snelling supplied the photographic prints which were available for sale at Gardner's lectures. Author and prominent spiritualist Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you might know him as the author from Sherlock Holmes, Mm -hmm. learned of the photographs from the editor of the spiritualist publication Light. Doyle had been commissioned by the Strand magazine to write an article on fairies for their Christmas issue. Doyle contacted Gardner in June 1920 to determine the background to the photographs and wrote to Elsie and her father to request permission from them to use the prints in his article. Gardner and Doyle sought a second expert opinion from their photographic company, Kodak. Several of the company's technicians examined the enhanced prints, 
and although they agreed with Snelling that the pictures showed no signs of being faked, they concluded that this could not be taken as conclusive evidence that they were authentic photographs of fairies. Kodak declined to issue a certificate of authenticity. Gardner believed that the Kodak technicians might have not examined the photographs entirely objectively, observing that one had commented, quote-unquote, after all, as fairies couldn't be true, the photographs must have been faked somehow. The prints were also examined by another photographic company, Ilford, who reported that there was, quote-unquote, some evidence of faking. Gardner and Doyle, perhaps rather optimistically, interpreted the results of the three expert evaluations as two in favor of the photograph's authenticity and one against. Doyle also showed the photographs to the physicist and pioneering physical researcher Sir Oliver Lodge, who believed the photographs to be fake. He suggested that a troop of dancers had masqueraded as fairies and expressed doubt as to their distinctively Parisian hairstyles. Doyle was busy with organizing a lecture tour of Australia and in July 1920 sent Gardner to meet the Wright family. Francis was then living with her parents in Scarborough, but Elsie's father told Gardner that he had been so certain that the photographs were fake that while the girls were away, he searched their bedroom in the area around the beck or stream, looking for scraps of papers or cutouts, but found nothing incriminating. Found nothing what? <laughs> incriminating. Incriminating. Incri- when I say incriminating, <laughs> I was like, incriminating. What is, that? is that a word? Incriminating. <laughs> so incriminating. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Francis was then living with her parents in Scarborough, but Elsie's father told Gardner that he had been so certain that the photographs were fakes that while the girls were away, he searched their bedroom in the area around the back, looking for scraps of pictures or cutouts, but found nothing incriminating. Gardner believed the Wright family to be honest and respectable. To place the matter of the photograph's authenticity beyond doubt, he returned to Cottonling at the end of July with two W. Butcher and Sons cameo folding plate cameras. That is a mouthful. That is. Mm. And 24 secretly marked photographic plates. Frances was invited to stay with the Wright family during the school summer holidays so that she and Elsie could take more pictures of the fairies. Gardner described his briefing in his 1945 book, Fairies, A Book of Real Fairies. How original. <laughs> Barbara, you went deep on that one. So original. Things, a book of things. Fairies. <laughs> fairies. And more fairies. The fairies. Fairies, a book of that. <laughs> a book of that. I love that. Anyway, this is a quote from his book. I went off to Conley again, taking the two cameras and plates from London, and met the family and explained to the two girls the simple working of the cameras, giving them one of each to keep. The cameras were loaded, and my final advice was that they need to go up to the Glen only on fine days as they had been accustomed to before, entice the fairies, as they called their way of attracting them, and see what they could get. I suggested only the most obvious and easy precautions about lighting and distance, for I knew it was essential they should feel free and unhampered and have no burden of responsibility. If nothing came of it at all, I told them they were not to mind a bit. Until August 19th, the weather was unsuitable for photography because Francis and Elsie insisted that the fairies would not show themselves if others were watching. 
Elsie's mother was persuaded to visit her sisters for tea, leaving the girls alone. In her absence, the girls took several photographs. Why don't they just people, the adults just hide and watch? Fairies are smarter than that, Chad. Smarter than that, okay. (laughs) Apparently the parents aren't smarter than the fake fairies. Fairies, the fairies, they're fairies. (laughs) Fairies fairies. The book of fairies, the fairies. In her absence, the girls took several photographs, two of which appeared to show fairies. In the first, Francis and the Leaping Fairy, as the photograph is called, Francis is shown in profile with a winged fairy close by her nose. The second, titled Fairy Offering Posy of Harebells to Elsie, shows a fairy either hovering or tiptoeing on a branch and offering Elsie a flower. Two days later, the girls took the last picture, titled Fairies in Their Sunbath. The plates were packed in cotton wool and returned to Gardner in London, who sent an excited telegram to Doyle, who was in Melbourne at the time. Doyle wrote back, My heart was gladdened when out here far in Australia I had your note and the three wonderful pictures, which are confirmatory of our published results. When our fairies are admitted, other psychic phenomena will find a more ready acceptance. Can I say that last one looks real? The sun bath is real. <laughs> I believe in fairies, no. the fairies right now. <laughs> fairies, the fairies. fairies. I believe in fairies, not just Chad and I. <laughs> we almost made the, the whole show without a gay joke being cracked. I was I just know. waiting for it. Wait, gay guys are called fairies? Yeah. Uh, hello? Oh my God, you're so sheltered. Oh it's so cute. It's so cute. <laughs> are you for real? I just want to hug you. Yeah. Hug you? Hug you. Oh, I thought you said hug you. Jesus. <laughs> Puck you. Puck you. you know Puck you. Puck you. Oh, God. Wait, gay guys are really called fairies? Yes. Yeah, Why? How do you know I mean, that? it's kind of an, it's a derogatory nice. name. Yeah. Oh, Jeez, well, God. thank you for explaining to me. I mean, not that I would use <laughs> she that. She goes up to my, hey, fairy. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think we're called fairies? I don't know. Look at that picture. You walked in on me the other day watching NASCAR. Okay. That's just oh, about as good as that was as really concerning. That's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Oh, we're going to have. Um, an intervention about that because it's just really uncharacterizing of you to and do characterizing. That. <laughs> okay. There's a lot of words being pronounced incorrectly in this episode. Doyle's article in the December 1920 issue of the strand contained two higher resolution prints of the 197 photographs and sold out within days of publication to protect the girl's privacy. Francis and Elsie were called Alice and Iris respectively and the Wright family was referred to as the Carpenters. Doyle hoped that if the photographs convinced the public of the existence of fairies, then they might more readily accept other psychic phenomena. He ended his article with the words, The recognition of their existence will jolt the material 20th century mind out of its heavy ruts in the mud, and will make it admit that there is a glamour and mystery to life. Having discovered this, the world will not find it so difficult to accept that spiritual message supported by physical facts, which was already been put before it. Early press coverage was mixed, generally a combination of embarrassment and puzzlement. The historical novelist and poet Maurice Hewlett published a series of articles in the John O. London's Weekly Journal, in which he concluded, And knowing children, and knowing that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has legs, I decide that Miss Carpenters must have pulled one of them. (laughs) That's kind of funny. Mm. You got me, girl. Pulled my leg. Pull it. That's called old school shade. (laughs) 
The Sydney newspaper Truth on January 5th, 1921 expressed a similar view. For the true explanation of these fairy photographs, what is wanted is not a knowledge of occult phenomena, but a knowledge of children. Some public figures were more sympathetic. Margaret McKillen, the educational and social reformer, wrote, How wonderful that these dear children, such a wonderful gift has been given. The novelist Henry Devere Stockpool decided to take the fairy photographs and the girls at face value. In a letter to Gardner, he wrote, Look at Alice's face. Look at Iris's face. There is an extraordinary thing called truth, which has 10 million faces and forms. It is God's currency, and the cleverest coiner or forger cannot imitate it. Major John Hall Edwards, a keen photographer and pioneer of medical x-ray treatments in Britain, was a particularly vigorous critic. On the evidence, I have no hesitation in saying that these photographs could have been faked. I criticize the attitude of those who declared there is something supernatural in the circumstances attending to the taking of these pictures because, as a medical man, I believe that the inculcation of such absurd ideas into the minds of children will result in later life in manifestations in nervous disorder and mental disturbances. Gardner made a final visit to Cotton in August 1921. He again brought cameras and photographic plates for Francis and Elsie, but was accompanied by the occultist Jeffrey Hodson, although neither of the girls claimed to see any fairies, and there were no more photographs. On the contrary, he, Hodson, saw them fairies everywhere and wrote voluminous notes on his observations. By now, Elsie and Francis were tired of the whole fairy thing. Years later, Elsie looked at the photograph of herself and Francis taken with Hodson and said, Look at that, fed up with fairies. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, every day. <laughs> Both Elsie and Francis later admitted that they played along with Hodson out of mischief and that they considered him a fake. Hmm. Doyle used the later photographs in 1921 to illustrate a second article in The Strand in which he described other accounts of fairy sightings. The article formed the foundation for his 1922 book, The Coming of the Fairies. It's a better title. Yeah. <laughs> Much better. It's called Pride. <laughs> the Pride Parade. Oh my gosh. <laughs> As before, the photographs were received with mixed reviews. Skeptics noted that the fairies looked suspiciously like the traditional fairies of nursery tales and that they had very fashionable hairstyles. Mm. Public interest in the Contling fairies gradually subsided after 1921. Elsie and Francis eventually married other people <laughs> <laughs> and lived abroad for many years. Hey, it'd be fine if they married each other. Yeah, that's, that's true. fine. Well, they're cousins, so that's oh. That'd be oh, interesting. Yeah, no, that's no, not that's fine. Not, Never so mind. Cool. I forgot they were. We don't, want, we don't want eight toes. I forgot they were oh related. <laughs> I forgot they were related. In 1966, a reporter from the Daily Express newspaper traced Elsie, who was then back in England. She admitted in an interview given that year that the fairies might have been figments of my imagination, hmm. but left open the possibility she believed that she had somehow managed to photograph her thoughts. What? Yeah. The media subsequently became interested in Francis and Elsie's photographs once again. BBC Television's nationwide program investigated the case in 1971, but Elsie stuck to her story. I've told you that they're photographs of figments of our imagination, and that's what I'm sticking to. Elsie and Francis were interviewed by journalist Austin Mitchell 
in September 1976 for a program broadcast on Yorkshire television. When pressured by Mitchell, both women agreed that a rational person doesn't see fairies, but they denied having fabricated the photographs. What? That makes no sense. I know. I think it makes perfect sense. Someone's like saying they're crazy or something. (laughs) Yeah. Shrooms. Like they don't have a rational mind. You can't photograph something that's not there. Or or are they saying that they're children and that children don't have rational minds? So they in turn could see them because they were children. Yeah, but there's photographs. talking about the pictures. Bethany, can I ask you a question? Why do you hate children? (laughs) What's against? Why do you hate children? Honestly, can we just say Bethany is a photographer? Yes. Prove it. (laughs) Go look at my website. Where's your camera? It is in my house. Mm -hmm. Most (laughs) photographers would have their camera with them. Yeah, like Rodney Alcala. (laughs) Rodney Alcala has his camera. And that's why I'm not a serial killer. (laughs) In 1978, the magician and scientific skeptic James Randi and a team from the Committee of the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. I want to get on that board. (laughs) Examined the photographs using a computer enhancement process. They concluded that the photographs were fakes and that the strings could even be seen supporting the fairies. The strings? strings? Okay, I got to go back and look. Which I looked. I can't see them. In 1983, the cousins admitted an article published in the magazine The Unexplained that the photographs had been faked, although both maintained that they had really seen fairies. Elsie had copied illustrations of dancing girls from a popular children's book of the time, Princess Mary's Gift Book, published in 1914, and drew wings on them. They said they had cut them out of the cardboard figures and supported them with hat pins, disposing of their props in the beck once the photograph had been taken. But the cousins disagreed about the fifth and final photograph, which Doyle in The Coming of the Fairies described in this way. Seated on the upper left-hand edge with the wing well displayed in an undraped fairy, apparently considering whether it is time to get up. An earlier riser of more mature age is seen on the right, possessing abundant hair and wonderful wings. Her slightly denser body can be glimpsed within her fairy dress. Elsie maintained it was a fake, just like all the others, but Francis insisted that it was genuine. In an interview given in the early 1980s, Francis said, It was a wet Saturday afternoon, and we were just mooching about with our cameras, and Elsie had nothing prepared. I saw these fairies building up in the grasses and just aimed the camera and took a photograph. Both Francis and Elsie claimed to have taken the fifth photograph. In a letter published in the Times newspaper on April 9, 1983, Jeffrey Crawley explained the discrepancy by suggesting that the photograph was an unintended double exposure of fairy cutouts in the grass. And thus, both ladies can be quite sincere in believing that they each took it. Oh, because they each took one shot Mm, and it was a double exposure. Okay. In a 1985 interview on Yorkshire Television's Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers, Elsie said that she and Francis were too embarrassed to admit the truth after fooling Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes. She said, quote, two village kids and a brilliant man like Conan Doyle. Well, we could only have keep quiet. Yeah, for real, though. Yeah. <laughs> I don't blame them. <laughs> yeah, that may, I mean, that may, as a kid, You're that a makes kid, sense. Yeah. In the same interview, Francis said, I never even thought of it as being fraud. It was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun. And I can't understand to this day why they were taken in. Hmm. They just wanted to be taken in. Yeah. Hmm. Francis died in 1986 and Elsie in 1988. 
Prints of their photographs of the fairies, along with a few others included in the first edition of Doyle's book, The Coming of the Fairies, were sold at auction in London for almost $26,000 in 1998. Wow. That same year, Jeffrey Crawley sold his Contling Fairies material to the National Museum of Film, Photography, and Television in Bradford, which is now the National Science and Media Museum. The collection, including prints of the photographs, two of the cameras used by the girls, watercolors of fairies painted by Elsie, and a nine-page letter from Elsie admitting to the hoax. The glass photographic plates were bought for $7,137 by an unnamed buyer at a London auction held in 2001. Francis's daughter, Christine Lynch, appeared in an episode of the television program Antiques Roadshow in Belfast, broadcast on BBC One in January 2009, with the photographs and one of the cameras given to the girls by Doyle. Christine told the expert Paul Atterbury that she believed, as her mother had done, that the fairies in the fifth photograph were genuine. Atterbury estimated the value of the items somewhere between $30,000 and $35,000. The first edition of Francis's memoirs was published a few months later, under the title Reflections on the Contling Fairies. The book contains correspondence between Elsie and Francis, and one letter dated 1983 Francis wrote, I hated those photographs from the age of 16 when Mr. Gardner presented me with a bunch of flowers and wanted me to sit on the platform at a Theosophical Society meeting with him. I realized what I was in for if I did not keep myself hidden. The 1997 film Fairy Tale The True Story and Photographing Fairies, which was another movie that came out about the same time, were inspired by the events surrounding the Cotling Fairies. And because of that, I was one gullible-ass child. (laughs) That is the story the of the Conling Fairies. <laughs> so the their family didn't know. Their family wasn't in on this at all. No. Just the two little girls. There were skeptics that thought the parents were in on it. But they weren't. But they were not. So what? The, so they were actually like props that they were taking photos with. Yeah, they were cardboard cutouts. Wow. She had drawn them and made them. Yeah, with hat pins stuck up on yeah, hat Yeah, and then they disposed of them so no one could find them. Mm-hmm. In the river. When I looked at the photo, especially that first one, it looks like it's... They're edited in there. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize they're actually in the photo for real. I mean, they did a good job for being two young girls. Yeah. Oh, well, clearly they fooled the world. I so. mean, that's true. The photo, fo- the last photo looks legit. Like if it's I'm the most legit from one. the 1920s, I would have been like, oh my God, there's fairies it's exist. It's because of the double exposure. It gives it like a ghostly yeah. feel. You would know. I would know. But it's not like they set out to fool the world. They just right. made these pictures right. and then people freaked out and they were ran just off being it. creative little girls. Yeah. I mean, and then it got so big that they were too scared to. Yeah. Now I want to find the pins. When or you the get dressed into the spotlight back then and you're literally, you know. Yeah. I'm sure they felt, I mean, they said they felt like they had no option. And then Poor at some point, ones. I'm afraid you think you're going to get in trouble if you, yeah, you, know. if you admitted mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. I mean, I'm in the spotlight all the time. <laughs> so I get it. You're, I'm with you, I'm with you Eliza, and. No. Bernadette. <laughs> Bernadette. I haven't seen that Francis movie in and years. Elsie. But I remember in the movie they do play it off as this they are real fairies. Mm. I don't I guess I haven't seen it. It's a cute movie. Oh God, what do I feel like I'm gonna have to watch this soon? <laughs> it really is a good movie. I'm sure it I is. haven't seen it in since I was a kid. I didn't learn about fairies when I was little, I don't think. All that's every kid should real. believe in fairies. All I knew about was Tinkerbell. Yeah, that's the only one. I love those old stories where it's yeah. like you don't know about it, but then 
you have to take yourself back in time to be like, I probably would have fell for that. Yeah, yeah. I I really would have. Oh, I actually want to hear from Kelly Hayes, Joni's granddaughter. Oh, yeah. The one from, I believe, in Sussex. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know of this story. Mm-hmm. to see if we did it any kind of justice and <laughs> what all I like, pronounced no, wrong because I'm sure it was a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh, I follow her on TikTok. Follow her on TikTok. She's hilarious and she's really? so freaking cute. Aww. Seriously, she looks like a badass. Also, you. your apartment looks really cute too. Kelly, if we didn't do it justice, don't tell us. <laughs> so thank you. Oh, Just thank say you. a good job. <laughs> Kelly's the one that told us about the McDonald triangle too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes for McDonald's. Yes for oh, I want a two cheeseburger. Cheese- I was gonna say cheeseburgers and fries. <laughs> oh God, yes. Thanks for listening this week. Head over to our website, wildsocietypodcast.com to see pictures from today's episode. Wherever you're listening, be sure to hit follow or subscribe so you'll receive each week's new episode automatically. You can find us on Twitter at Wild Society Pod or on Instagram at Wild Society Podcast. Send us your questions if you have questions about the podcast about us, about true crime, whatever, we're going to compile them and make a fun video for you guys. And hopefully we can get Ben to make an appearance. hey A naughty appearance. <laughs> <laughs> In the Clavin Kleins. You can send us the questions on Instagram or Twitter or go to our website and click on the contact page and you can send them through there. What did you believe in when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. Let us know that, too. We love you guys. We're so glad you're listening and we'll see you next week. <gasps> Courtney. What? There's a fairy on your shoulder. <gasps> believe.